From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. On Valentine's Day, 1983, two new beautiful sister ships, the Americas and the Altair, sank in the Bering Sea in calm water while on their way to the King Crab fishing grounds near the Pribilof Islands. Fourteen men lost their lives in the worst disaster in the history of U.S. commercial fishing. A massive investigation ensued to determine what happened to the boats and what could be done to make commercial fishing safer. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. One of the many images the name Alaska conjures is a plate of steaming crab legs accompanied by a ramekin of drawn butter. King crab ranks with lobster as one of the premier shellfish delicacies in the world. And while shellfish connoisseurs have long appreciated king crab from Alaska, the television show The Deadliest Catch made folks aware of the rigors and dangers involved in catching the beautiful crabs they crave. Although the program is sometimes overly dramatic, there is no question crab fishing can be highly profitable, but it is also often dangerous. In the mid-1970s, the death rate for commercial fishermen soared to 75 times the U.S. national average for deaths on the job, and the mortality rate for crab fishing in Alaska in the winter peaked 25 times higher than the death toll for the rest of the commercial fishing industry. It was nine times more dangerous for an individual to take a job crab fishing in Alaska than it was for him to become a miner or logger, the two next most hazardous jobs. In the 1980s, king crab became even more valuable and the death toll rose. The commercial fishery for king crab occurs in the winter in Alaska and king crabs don't conveniently congregate in protected bays. Fishermen pursue the giant crabs in the open ocean in some of the most treacherous waters in the world during the stormiest months in Alaska. Although the job pays well, life on a crab boat is often hell. And the crazy thing is, this danger and money revolve around something we eat. When you were 19 years old, would you have applied for a job you knew was risky but could earn you between $50,000 and $100,000 for three months of work? In Alaska and the Pacific Northwest in the 1970s and 1980s, young men fought for positions as crew on crab boats heading to the Bering Sea. Not only did working on a crab boat pay 10 times more than any other available job, but it promised adventure and esteem. 
To be chosen to work as a crewman on a first-rate fishing vessel proved an honor, making you an instant hero among your peers. In 1983, one of the most prestigious and profitable fleets of crabbing vessels in the North Pacific belonged to Jeff Hendricks in Anacortes, Washington. Young men from Anacortes yearned for jobs on one of Hendricks' boats, where boys had the rare opportunity of graduating from high school, stepping onto the deck of a vessel, and earning over $50,000 for a few months of work. Hendricks, the son of a commercial fisherman, spent enough time as a teenager on his father's boat to know he did not want to become a commercial fisherman. He went to college and earned his real estate license, but when the real estate market in Seattle collapsed in 1972, he and his wife Linda moved to Linda's hometown of Anacortes, and Jeff returned to a job he didn't love, but he knew well. Hendricks had perfect timing. He returned to commercial fishing just when fertile crab grounds were discovered near the Pribilof Islands in 1972. At the same time, the public demand for king crab exploded, and banks eagerly loaned money to prospective boat owners. Hendricks knew he needed big, strong boats to handle the rigors of the Bering Sea, and he imagined a design and dreamed of owning a fleet of vessels. His boats would have names beginning with the letter A, identifying them with his adopted home of Anacortes. He would hire his crewmen from the fishermen and young men of Anacortes, providing good jobs for his family, friends, and neighbors, and instilling the town of Anacortes with pride and hope. In January 1977, work began on Hendrick's boat, the Antares, a steel-hulled vessel measuring 123.5 feet or 37.64 meters in length and spanning 32 feet or 9.75 meters in width. Its hull gleamed sky blue, emblazoned with a white-winged emblem, the logo of the Hendrick's fleet. The Antares held a deep 14,000-gallon center-line fuel tank, four double-bottom fuel tanks, six wing tanks, and four big crab tanks. Once the builders launched the Antares, experts conducted stability tests on the vessel to determine the material strength of the hull and the equilibrium of the boat. According to Coast Guard statistics at the time the Antares was built, material failure or instability accounted for 85% of the known causes of why boats sink at sea. While the tests were expensive, it was essential to compute the stability of a vessel with a new design. Once the designer determined the stability, he calculated guidelines constituting a stability letter. This critical letter remained on board the boat and recommended how a skipper should load the boat to avoid it from rolling over and capsizing. Usually, a roll of more than 30 to 35 degrees was considered unsafe. The stability letter recommended how many pounds of gear should be stacked on deck, as well as how much fuel the tank should carry and which tank should be emptied first. Stability shifts when the crab tanks are full of water and crab. 
when tons of ice cake the deck, railings, and gear while traveling in rough seas and cold temperatures, the stability changes again. In 1977, when the Antares was built, the Coast Guard did not require a stability letter for commercial fishing vessels. But insurance companies preferred a stability letter. And Jeff Hendricks wanted a letter to keep a vessel and crew safe and to understand how much weight his boats could carry and how the weight should be distributed. After building the Antares, Hendricks commissioned the Americas and Altair. These boats were built on the same pattern as the Antares, and instead of paying for multiple expensive stability tests, Hendricks used the stability letter from the Antares for all three boats. By the early 1980s, Hendricks had expanded his fleet of A-boats and decided he needed to diversify the use of his vessels for other fisheries in addition to the short winter crab season. He followed the lead of Russian, Japanese, Norwegian, and German boat owners and added gear to his crab catchers so they could be used as fishing trawlers when the crab season ended. Hendricks knew adding heavy trawling gear to his vessels meant he would need to reduce the number of crab pots on the boats, but he believed in the long run he would make more money by extending the seasons of the boats by trawling for Pollock. Adding trawling gear would also allow the vessels to operate nearly year-round. In early 1981, the first trawl gear fittings added more than five tons to the Alaska, Antares, Americas, and Altair. Hendricks did not add trawling gear to the slightly smaller Alliance. In December 1981, Hendricks added nearly 22 additional tons of trawling gear to the 4A boats. Because of the added weight of the trawling gear, the captains of the boats varied the trim of their vessels to maintain their stability. These changes included reducing the number of crab pots and reconfiguring fuel tank loads. Some of the captains also began experimenting with flooding the crab tanks for a gentler ride. George Nations, the captain of the Americas, favored cross-tanking, or flooding crab tanks diagonal to each other. Tragedy struck the Antares in 1982 near False Pass, 300 miles west of the Alaska Peninsula, when the hydraulic system caught on fire and flames consumed the boat. The crewmen escaped in life rafts and were rescued, but the burned-out hull of the Antares sank as it was being towed to port. On January 31, 1983, the Alaska, captained by Brian Melvin, and the Alliance, captained by Glenn Treadwell, departed Anacortes for the 10-day, 2,000-mile, or 3,200-kilometer voyage to Dutch Harbor. The Altair, captained by Ronald Bairns, and the Americas, captained by Relief Captain Brent Bowles, left Anacortes three days later. Hendricks staggered the departure of his boats to facilitate the loading of crab pots and the unloading of fuel at the processor in Dutch Harbor. George Nations, the captain of the Americas, was in the process of building a house in Anacortes, so he decided to skip the voyage north to Dutch Harbor and instead let his relief captain, Bowles, run the boat north. 
Nations then flew to Dutch Harbor and met the Americas before the crab season began. On February 8, 1983, the first of the A-boats, the Alaska, captained by Brian Melvin, arrived in Dutch Harbor and pulled up to the Sea Alaska floating processor. The Sea Alaska acted as a host for Hendricks boats by storing their fuel, supplies, and equipment, and by offloading and processing their catch. Since fuel costs less in Anacortes than it did in Dutch Harbor, all four A-boats traveled with full fuel tanks and then offloaded much of their fuel to the Sea Alaska to hold for them until they needed it. Six hours after the Alaska tied to the Sea Alaska, the Alliance, captained by Glenn Treadwell, arrived. In addition to transferring fuel to the Sea Alaska, both boats loaded crab pots, herring bait, and other supplies from the Sea Alaska onto their decks and into their holds. Melvin oversaw the loading of 208 crab pots on the Alaska. Each crab pot weighed 690 pounds, or 313 kilograms. Due to the weight of the new trawling gear, the Alaska carried 20 fewer crab pots than it had the previous season. The smaller alliance held 90 crab pots. Once they'd loaded the gear, Melvin and Treadwell set course north-northwest to travel 200 miles to the Bering Sea to drop their load of pots. Under the surface of the chaotic Bering Sea thrives one of the most productive fisheries in the world. The Bering Sea Basin is the most seismically active region on Earth. Earthquakes shake the ground and volcanoes erupt, spewing smoke and lava. In the winter in the North Pacific, the warm clockwise Japanese current collides with the frigid counterclockwise Bering Current and with extremely cold water masses flowing south from the Arctic. Where these opposing currents meet, violent storms explode, impacting the entire North American continent. In the winter months, storm after storm descends upon the relatively shallow, narrow Bering Sea, and hurricane-force winds create 50-foot or 15.2-meter waves. In sub-zero temperatures, the waves overtake boats and freeze instantly, adding tons of ice and destabilizing vessels. The crew must grab baseball bats and sledgehammers and work furiously for hours, pounding the ice off the decks and railings to keep the boats from sinking. The captains and crew of the Alaska and Alliance knew such a storm was expected to hit in a few days. While the crews of the Alaska and Alliance dropped their first load of pots, the Americas now tear arrived in Dutch Harbor to begin offloading fuel and loading pots, bait, and other gear. George Nations flew into Dutch Harbor and joined Brent Bowles on the Americas. The transfer of fuel was particularly critical and tricky because the crew needed to move 30% of the onboard fuel load to the processor. Moving this much fuel shifted the vessel's ballast, possibly making it less stable. After the fuel transfer, each boat weighed 100 tons less. While the addition of heavy crab pots made up for the weight loss, the fuel came from below deck tanks while the pots were stacked high on the deck. The stability of the vessel shifted significantly with these changes. 
The vessel's large, double-bottom fuel tank held the most fuel and provided the best ballast, so the captains usually emptied the wing tanks first. Many captains believed flooding the crab tanks while traveling added stability to the boat. Some flooded all four crab tanks and others cross-tanked by flooding the two tanks diagonal from each other. The Americas and Altair each carried 228 crab pots when they left Dutch Harbor to head to the crabbing grounds near the Pribilof Islands. While the Americas and Altair loaded their gear, the Alieska and Alliance returned to port for their second load of pots. The crewmen of the four boats, all friends from Anacortes, mingled and joked. The sound of an engine awakened Glenn Treadwell at 2 a.m. on February 14th, and he found Ron Barnes untying the Altair in preparation to head out to sea. Treadwell helped the crew unleash the lines of the Altair and watched as the boat pulled away from the dock. He later recalled something looked wrong with the vessel. It seemed to be sitting too low in the water. He saw water cascading over the deck and knew Bairns probably had flooded all four crab tanks, as was his custom to provide a slower, easier roll. Still, as Treadwell eyed the boot stripe, the painted stripe running the length of the boat a few inches above the waterline, it looked normal considering the heavy load on the vessel. Treadwell trusted Bairns' expertise and knew the boat must feel right to him. All the A-boats carried first-rate safety gear, and Hendricks demanded the crews practice emergency drills, such as donning survival suits and fighting fires. Each boat also carried an EPIRB, a battery-operated emergency position-indicating radio beacon, and the captain was supposed to mount the EPIRB outside the wheelhouse. If the boat sank, the EPIRB would break loose and float to the surface, broadcasting its position for 48 hours on frequencies monitored by the Coast Guard, the military, and even commercial aircraft. Since EPIRBs are expensive, the captains of the A-boats typically secured the devices in the wheelhouse while they were in Dutch Harbor. Once they left the harbor, though, it was standard practice to return the EPIRB to its bracket. At 8 a.m., George Nations piloted the Americas out of Dutch Harbor. The Alaska and Alliance continued to load pots and transfer fuel, hoping to leave the harbor before the forecasted storm arrived. At 12.15 p.m. on February 14th, the captain of the Neptune Jade, a Singapore-registered freighter headed for the Orient, noted a strange stationary blip on his radar. He reasoned the object was a boat, but why wasn't it moving? He attempted to call the vessel and ask if it needed assistance, but he received no answer. He then headed toward the position of the radar blip, thinking it might be a boat in distress. Three hours later, a crewman on the Neptune Jade spotted the hull of an overturned boat. The bottom of the hull was painted blue with a horizontal red stripe. The captain of the Neptune Jade announced over the radio the position and description of the overturned vessel. And the captain of another boat relayed the message to the U.S. Coast Guard station in Kodiak. 
Two vessels in the area, the Alaska Invader and Pacific Invader, rushed toward the coordinates of the overturned hull. The Neptune Jade, meanwhile, left the overturned boat and continued its journey to the Orient. Forty-five minutes later, the merchant vessel Ocean Brother, on its way to Japan, radioed the Coast Guard and reported an overturned hull. This sighting was positioned 3.5 nautical miles southwest of the coordinates given by the Neptune Jade 45 minutes earlier. While possible, it is unlikely the hull sighted by the Neptune Jade could have drifted so far in such a short amount of time. The Coast Guard made an understandable mistake by assuming both sightings pertained to the same vessel. The Coast Guard base in Kodiak, 500 miles away, launched a C-130 search plane. The slow plane would not arrive on the scene of the overturned hull for three hours. The crews of the Alliance and Alyeska, still in Dutch Harbor, heard the Coast Guard's urgent marine information broadcast about the overturned hull. But those at the dock in Dutch Harbor believed the hull probably belonged to a boat that had burned a week earlier at Akatan Island. At 8 p.m. on February 14th, the Alyeska left Dutch Harbor, and the Alliance followed 15 minutes later. On their way to the crab grounds, Treadwell and Melvin decided to run parallel courses to each other five miles apart, keeping a watch for the overturned hull. They saw nothing, and with a huge storm rapidly approaching, they raced toward the Pribilofs before the storm could overtake them. Lonnie Sullivan, the police chief in Dutch Harbor, asked his friend Buster McNabb, the skipper of the crab boat Golden Pisces, to transport him to the overturned hull and help mount a rescue if possible. When they reached the boat, McNabb, Sullivan, and the crew of the Golden Pisces watched the hull toss in the growing seas. Sullivan knew it was too dangerous to send divers into the water in these conditions. When one massive wave hit the stern, the bow rose, and McNabb saw an American flag emblem wrapping around the side of the hull. He realized he was looking at the overturned hull of the Americas, and he immediately radioed Dutch Harbor and described the hull of the boat. Brian Melvin half-listened to the radio chatter between boats as he cruised toward the Pribilof Islands. But when someone came on the radio and asked which of the A-boats were out, he tuned into the conversation. The man then repeated the description of the overturned hull and said he thought it might belong to one of the A-boats. Melvin suddenly felt sick and tried to call the Americas on the radio. When he received no answer, he attempted to contact the Altair. But again, there was no reply. He then called Treadwell on the Alliance, and despite the approaching storm, both captains turned their boats around and headed toward the coordinates of the overturned boat. The two captains conferred and decided to drop 30 pots each in shallow water to lighten their loads. Melvin began to worry. He feared the Americas was down, and he couldn't reach the Altair. His boat, 
The Alaska was a carbon copy of those two boats, and he carried the same load and even flooded his four crab tanks for traveling, just as Bairns did on the Altair. Were the three boats unstable, and was the Alaska in danger of capsizing? Thirty-six hours after the Neptune Jade first spotted an overturned hull, Brian Melvin and his crew on the Alaska arrived at the hull of the capsized Americas. His crew wanted to jump overboard, knock on the hull of the vessel, and see if their friends were still alive inside the boat. But Melvin denied the request to jump in the water. The storm was gaining intensity, and it would be suicide to jump into the mounting waves of the frigid Bering Sea. Melvin and his men helplessly watched the bulbing hull. When the Alliance arrived on site, it stood by the hull while the crew of the Alaska searched for survivors. Nine hours later, at 11.30 a.m., Treadwell called Melvin and told him to hurry back to the hull. The crews of both boats lined the decks and watched in silence as the hull of the Americas rose one last time and then slid beneath the waves, sinking in 4,200 feet or 1,280 meters of water. With the Americas gone, Melvin and Treadwell continued to try to contact the Altair by radio, but they had no luck. The Altair had vanished. Neither the Americas nor the Altair relayed a Mayday call, and neither boat's EPIRB sent a distress signal. Let me take a short break from the story to thank the wonderful, creative folks at the puzzle game app Best Fiends. I appreciate you for supporting this podcast. I'm sure by now you've heard of Best Fiends. It's a fun, colorful game designed for adults but appropriate for everyone. The game consists of a series of puzzles, and at the lower levels, Best Fiend seems deceptively simple as you collect cute characters who help you defeat the slugs and gather flowers, strawberries, leaves, and water. But as you progress, the puzzles grow more challenging. I am now on level 539. Sometimes I solve a level on my first try, but other times it takes me two dozen attempts or more before I succeed. I didn't think I would ever get past level 520, and when I finally received all the green check marks, my fiends and I cheered. <laughs> I love puzzles, and if you listen to true crime, I'm sure you also like to solve puzzles. For me, Best Fiends is a great way to relax for a few minutes, lighten my mood, and reset my brain. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Oddly, one month later, when the Alliance and Alaska returned to the Bering Sea, 
Treadwell and his crew spotted an orange, deflated life raft floating in the water. They plucked the raft from the sea and stared at it in disbelief. The name Altair was stenciled on the side. Of all the boats traveling through the Bering Sea, Treadwell could not believe he and his crew were the ones who found the lone remnant from the Altair. What possibly could have happened to cause the Americas and Altair, two of the finest boats in the North Pacific fleet, to capsize soon after leaving Dutch Harbor in relatively calm seas? Fourteen men, all from Anacortes, Washington, lost their lives in the worst disaster in the history of U.S. commercial fishing. The Coast Guard's Marine Board of Investigation, along with the National Transportation Safety Board, undertook the investigation into what happened to the two boats. Coast Guard Captain John DeCarteret led the inquiry. DeCarteret already knew the statistics. An average of 108 commercial fishermen died annually in U.S. waters, and one-third of those deaths happened in the Bering Sea and the Gulf of Alaska capsizing constituted the leading cause of these deaths. What were the odds of two sister ships capsizing at nearly the same time in calm seas? Descartes considered other possible causes for the loss of the two vessels. Could the boats have rammed each other by accident? Were they overtaken by a rogue wave? Could the boats have been sabotaged? Were there foreign vessels in the area? Photos taken of the overturned hull of the Americas showed no damage, making the collision theory unlikely. Descartes did not believe the boats had been sabotaged by foreigners, but he could not rule out the possibility. Descartes and the Marine Board of Investigation questioned many people, including Treadwell and Melvin, as well as the owner of the boats, Jeff Hendricks, and the boat's designer, Jacob Fisker Anderson. Hendricks genuinely seemed perplexed by the loss of his two boats, and board members felt he was doing all he could to assist them with their inquiry. Fisker Anderson confirmed that the only stability information for the Americas and Altair came from the report done on the Antares. The stability test was not repeated after the addition of trawling gear to the vessels, but Fisker Anderson said he and Hendricks agreed that as long as the captains subtracted an equal weight in crab pots to make up for the additional weight of the trawling gear, the stability should remain the same. In its initial inquiries, the Marine Board hit young Captain Brian Melvin hard. They asked him to describe how he loaded the Alyeska in Dutch Harbor, and then asked if he consulted the stability letter during the loading process. When Melvin said he had not, NTSB investigator Doug Raby handed him a copy of the letter and asked him if he could find instructions which would correspond with how the Alyeska was loaded in Dutch Harbor. Melvin could find nothing relevant in the letter. After the hearing, Descartes felt the board had uncovered several essential facts. The retrofitting for the trawling gear had added weight to the decks of each vessel, and neither vessel had been reclined for new stability variables. No one knew which fuel tanks the crews had emptied when the two vessels transferred fuel to the Sea Alaska. 
and Ronald Bairns probably ordered all the crab tanks on the Altair filled with water, while George Nations likely cross-tanked the Americas. Since the crab tanks sit higher than the emptied fuel tanks, the full crab tanks would not entirely make up for the lost weight deep in the hull. Also, water sloshes out of the full crab tanks, adding more weight to the deck. The captains seemingly took none of these variables into account, but believed they could judge if their boats felt right in the water. De Carteret asked Bruce Adie, a mechanical engineer and an expert on marine stability, to assist him with the investigation. Adie used a model boat and loaded it with weights equivalent to 228 crab pots and the trawling gear carried by the Americas. He then added and subtracted weights to simulate cross-tanking of the crab tanks and the empty fuel tanks. But no matter what he did, his model boat would not capsize. Meanwhile, de Carteret used a computer program to do much the same thing, but he too was unable to capsize his model with the weights and configurations given to him by Fisker Anderson and Hendricks. Adie developed a theory about what had happened to the Americas in Altair, but his theory would not be easy to prove. He thought synchronous rolling could have caused the two boats to roll over and sink. He explained that with synchronous rolling, even small waves can cause a boat to sink. Synchronous rolling occurs when a boat fails to completely right itself after a roll and then lays over further and further with every subsequent roll. The rolls might not be significant, but if the boat doesn't right itself between the rolls, it will continue to tip at an ever-increasing angle until it capsizes. Synchronous rolling can be catastrophic even in small seas, and it happens because a boat is unstable. Adie backed up this theory by pointing to the rudder in the photo of the overturned hull of the Americas. The rudder was hard over to starboard, and Adie believed this constituted proof the captain tried to correct the steering when the boat began to capsize. Adie told de Carteret the final motion to capsize must have been catastrophic and sudden. If Adie's synchronous rolling theory was correct, though, why were the boats unstable? De Carteret wondered what he had missed. Adie said a captain could not simply subtract crab pots from the deck to offset the addition of 30 tons of trawling gear because the pots and the trawling gear were in different locations on the deck and affected the metacentric height differently. Yet, neither Adie nor de Carteret had been able to cause their models of the Americas to capsize by subtracting the same number of crab pots George Nations had on the Americas. Something was wrong with the numbers they had been given. Coast Guard inspectors asked Dave Stanchfield if they could examine his boat, the Morning Star, since the Morning Star was built on the same pattern as the Americas. Both boats were patterned after the Antares, but because the Antares had burned and then sank while being towed to port, it was not available for inspection. 
Adi and his team stripped all the gear off the Morning Star, measured the boat, and determined its displacement. Once Adi performed the necessary calculations, he learned the Morning Star weighed 55.6 tons more than the light ship weight listed for the Antares in its stability report. Adi's findings stunned Fisker Anderson. Had Fisker Anderson made a mistake in calculating the stability of the Antares? Since the stability report for the Antares was also used for the Americas, Altair, Alieska, and Morningstar, did they all weigh more than Fisker Anderson had calculated? And if so, were they all unstable? The final piece of the puzzle fell into place when a marine surveyor sent a D photos of the Altair running in calm waters with a light load. The surveyor did not tell him what to look at, and at first, the purpose behind the photos baffled a D. With the aid of a magnifying glass, a D scanned the images and measured the distance from the boot stripe to both the waterline and the railing of the boat. The measurements matched what he would expect if the boat carried a light load. He then picked up a photo of the Altair when it was loaded to sail from Anacortes to Dutch Harbor in February 1983. He again measured the distance from the bootstripe to the sea and to the railing. The measurements jarred him. The bootstripe was painted a foot higher in this photo than it had been in the older photos. He entered the measurements into his computer program, and the calculations clearly showed the Altair weighed 60 tons more than its determined weight after the addition of the trawling gear. More importantly, though, if the bootstripe had been at its original level, it would have sat well below the waterline after the boat was loaded in Dutch Harbor, making it evident to everyone that the vessel was overloaded and unstable. The higher bootstripe created a deadly illusion, causing the captains to believe their boats were correctly loaded. Bob Gudmundson, the builder of the A-boats, agreed the bootstripes of the A-boats had been painted a foot higher in January 1983 to combat the growth of corrosive marine algae on the hull. He claimed the bootstripes did not serve as reference points, but a D knew captains used the stripes as a guide to determine the rough weight of their vessels. Adi concluded the Americas and Altair were so overloaded and unstable when they left Dutch Harbor, they were doomed to capsize. He determined the only difference between the two boats was if the Altair flooded all its crab tanks, while the Americas only flooded two tanks, then the Altair was even more unstable than the Americas and probably rolled over and sank faster. Brian Melvin and his crew on the Alieska were lucky they did not suffer a similar fate. Despite his erroneous weight calculations in the stability report, the Marine Board of Investigation assigned no blame to Jacob Fisker Anderson. The board also exonerated Jeff Hendricks and the builders of the Altair and Americas. De Carteret felt the real issue with the losses of the Altair and Americas, as well as with the losses of many other fishing vessels, was the lack of safety regulations for the commercial fishing boats in the United States. He fought for stricter safety regulations, 
but the commercial fishing industry pushed back. Fishermen believed the government had no business regulating their industry. Changes were on the horizon, though, and the investigation into the sinking of the Americas and Altair helped lay the foundation to make commercial fishing a little safer. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.